understand subject called the Trinity. Um, not Carrie Ann Moss's character from The Matrix, but the theological concept. You know, real easy and simple to understand. Not really. Like, if you ask somebody, you went up on the screen, you say, explain the Trinity to me. Explain how God is the Father, Son, and Spirit, but they're one. <laughs> I imagine you'd have some crazy answers. And um, it's not just your average person who struggles with this. Christianity has struggled with this. The church has struggled with this. Like, how do we deal with this? Uh, what appears to be a paradigm, which uh, appears to not make any sense. It was almost 300 years after Jesus when Christianity sat down, they got together, and they said, we've been thinking about this, we've had our smartest minds thinking about this for 300 years, so let's put some theological parameters around this, let's, let's really define this thing, and this is what they said, God is three persons, but one essence. Essentially, they said, God is three persons, one being. After 300 years of thinking about this, and writing about it, and dwelling on it, and praying about it, this is the non-answer that we got about how to explain the Trinity. And thousands of years later, the church hasn't done a lot better, right? We still pretty much say the exact same thing. God is three persons, one being. And um, I could take the rest of the time, I could take the rest of the year and try to talk about the Trinity and try to explain it and try to make sense of it. But I'm not going to do that because I'm less interested in trying to explain it, especially after Christianity has for thousands of years failed to really explain it. I'm more interested in talking about why it should matter to us. Seminary often teaches young men and young women how to explain things. You go away and I went away and to seminary and they taught me how to explain the Bible. But what I think they often fail to do is teach us about why people should actually care about what we're explaining. And so I'm not going to try to explain the Trinity because I don't think I can. But I am going to talk about why I think this theological, theological concept of the Trinity affects our everyday lives, why I think it's beautiful, and why I think it's one of the most important realities about who God is and what he is like. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about who is God? What is God like? What is his character and nature? Like, if I were to describe Darby, I could tell you, like, she's super artsy, she's super fun and bubbly, she's talented, she's musical, she's getting really uncomfortable because I'm talking about her. But if we were to talk about God, many times we would struggle to talk about what his character and nature is like. And so that's why we've been talking about these things. And I think the Trinity is essential to having a right idea about what Yahweh, the Christian God, is like. We talked about last week that the name given for God in the Bible is Yahweh. And um, unlike the name Yahweh, which is found in the Bible, the word Trinity isn't found in the Bible. You say, Alex, you're talking to us about something that's not found in the Bible? You just make this up? Well, the word Trinity isn't in the Bible, but the concept of the Trinity is in the Bible. The word Trinity comes from two Latin words, Trinitus, which means three, and Unitus, which means one. And so they combined those together and they made Trinity, three and one. And while the word isn't found in scripture, the concept is littered all the way from page one to the last page of the Bible. Especially it's found in the New Testament, but not exclusively in the New Testament as we'll talk about in a few minutes. But take this passage in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, this famous passage of Jesus' baptism. It says in verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, Jesus, I need you to baptize me. Why are you coming to me? And Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this 
to fulfill all righteousness. John consented and said, hey, Jesus, if you tell me to baptize you, I'll do it. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And we have a lot to unpack in this short little passage about the Trinity. Here we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all on display. And Matthew here uses Genesis language, creation language, um, to describe this baptism. In Genesis 1, 2, chapter 1, verse 2, on page 1 of the Bible, it says the Spirit of God hovered over the waters before he created things. In verse 26, on page 1 of the Bible, God says, let us make man in our image. Who's he talking to? Well, we think that he's talking to the Son and the Spirit. Now, here in this passage, this is a new creation image. God has taken on the image of man. He made mankind in his image. Now he's taking on the image of man so that he can come and rescue mankind. The baptism of Jesus is the beginning of a new creation. That's the picture we're going to hear. The Spirit hovers over the water as the Father loves the Son, and the Son invites humans to leave their earthly rebellion and enter into the heavenly, heavenly love by becoming disciples of Jesus. Sometimes people ask me something like, they think they're being real clever, and they're like, so what was God doing before he created the world? Like, we just imagine him sitting around, like, maybe he had a phone game and he was really obsessed with it. Like, what do you do when you, there's nothing that exists except you? Now, I think that's a good question, and I think it's a prime example, though, of why the Trinity is so important. If God is a singular being, if he's just God the Father and there's no Son or Spirit, then God spent the time in pre-creation being alone with no one to relate to and no one to have a relationship with. If God, like our Muslim friends, is just a singular Allah, one being, there's no Son or Spirit, then he spent all that time with just himself. Which reminds me of the great theological illustration of Jurassic Park. Um, not even a chuckle. Yeah, thanks, thanks for that. Jurassic Park has some great theology in it. Um, so if you saw Jurassic World, Owen, has uh, he encounters this genetically modified dinosaur called Indominus Rex. Very intimidating. And he says, you raised this gigantic, powerful dinosaur in isolation. He had no community. He was never around anyone else. And so when he breaks out of his pen, he just sees everything and everyone for the first time. He has no community with other dinosaurs. And so he just murders and kills every dinosaur and every person he sees because he's never encountered another living being. They deliver his food by a crane. He's never seen anything alive. So everything alive he sees, he just destroys. He has no community. He has no relationships. He's never been taught anything about being relational, and so he just destroys. I think if God is not a trinity, he would be a monster. And I think this is most of the time how people in our community, how people in our society talk about God. They're like, well, God's a singular being who existed forever, and he has created people just so that he can control them. He's created people just so he can throw them in hell or throw them in heaven, and it's just a big game to him. If God's not a trinity, that makes sense. But I believe that God is a trinity. If God isn't a trinity, he either created things to amuse himself or to adore himself. He's like, I'm awesome. I'm the only thing that exists. I'm going to make people so they can worship me. Or B, he created things because he was lonely and insufficient in himself. 
The first example makes God into a narcissist, and boy, I've heard society claim that a lot. I get on Twitter sometimes, and I just look at the hashtag atheist, and I, I just want to know what people are saying. And one of the things I see most often is they say, what kind of narcissistic being would create people just to praise and worship him? But that's not the picture of a Trinitarian God. The second example makes God into an insecure child with cosmic powers. He's like, I'm lonely. I don't have any friends, but I can make friends. All my friends now have to be my friends. Like, both those are not the picture of God we have in the Bible. We have a Trinitarian picture of God. The picture we have of God in the Bible is very different than these caricatures of a singular being God who existed without community, without relationships. Now, I've heard all these arguments expressed by our culture as a reason not to believe in God, and sometimes I've even heard these things said in church. Like, you know why God made humans? He was lonely. He just wanted some friends. And I'm like, that's not why he created things. That's not what the Christian faith says. Jesus provides the answer of what God was doing pre-creation, and it reveals why he created things. Does anybody know, what was God doing before he created? I'll tell you. John 17, 24. Jesus says this. He's praying. He says, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. What was God the Father doing before the world was created? God the Father was loving God the Son and God the Spirit. And God the Son was loving God the Father and God the Spirit. And God the Spirit was loving God the Father and God the Son. The first thing that existed before there were light or atoms or music was a relationship. Yahweh, the Trinity, existed in eternal love and relationship before the world was created. The first emotion in the universe was love. Is there any question that love is the most powerful human emotion that we can experience? Perhaps that's because everything was built off of and built out of divine love. Now this is a very different climate to create out of. God isn't creating because he lacks something. He isn't creating so that he can control something. He's creating out of an, ab out of an abundance of love. In the other theological resource I go to, Parks and Recreation, um, and my jokes are terrible. I really miss Meg being here because she would always laugh at my terrible, uh, terrible jokes. Um, but in Parks and Recreation, there's a scene in the final season where Annie and April were like, I don't know if we should have kids. We've been married for a while. Maybe we should have kids. I don't know. It seems like such a big decision. And Leslie, the main character, she goes, you and Annie are a good team. You're such a great team. Great teams get only greater when they have more players. You should add some more players to your team. And in a lot of ways, that's what's happening here. Yahweh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are like, we love each other. We're in perfect unity and harmony. This is too good to keep to ourselves. We should create more beings to enjoy our love. That's why God created. He didn't create to control. He didn't create to fulfill some need in himself. His love was too good not to share. In fact, this is a characteristic of Yahweh that we see all throughout the Bible. He is Gracious. That means he's abounding in goodness and gives it away. He's eager to share his natural goodness with others. Yahweh is a giver. He makes people in order to give, not to get. Now, sometimes when I grew up in church, the way we talked about God was, God likes to get things from you. You better be serving him. You better be giving to him. You better be doing these things. And I didn't get a picture of God as a generous giver. But that's exactly what he 
Have you ever seen someone you love? Maybe you've been away from them for a little bit. I know sometimes Darby will go down to Georgia to visit her family, and she'll be gone like three days, and it's like the most miserable three days of my life. And then she comes back and I'm like, Darby, I love you. You know, you just have this outpouring of love. I think that's exactly what we see here when Jesus is baptized and he comes up out of the water and the spirit's hovering over him and the father speaks from heaven and he says, I love the son. I'm so proud and pleased with him. And how Jesus talks about the father as he ministers on earth, he talks about mutual respect and love and pleasure of being in relationship with each other. The ancient followers of Jesus, so people just a few hundred years after Jesus, referred to the Trinity as a divine dance. It's, it's three dancers who are, each partner is keeping pace with each other and acting in perfect harmony and unison, deferring to the direction of each other, lovingly leading and being led at the same time, a triune community of love, a divine dance with three partners, all keeping perfect and this is why the New Testament authors, when they talk about marriage and they talk about a husband and wife, they say you should model the mutual love and submission of the Trinity in your relationship. That's in Ephesians chapter 5. This is why in 1 John 4, 8, John says, if you do not act with love and mutual respect in your relationships with people, you really don't understand God. Because how does God relate with himself? The Father loves and respects the Son. The Son loves and respects the Spirit. The Spirit loves and respects the Father. And it goes around and around and around. And he says, your relationships should model this first relationship. The relationship at the center of the universe is not one where someone rules with power or coercion and says, I'm going to get what I want out of this relationship. The relationship at the center of the universe is where equal, united beings lead and lead each other in the unison of love. Now you might get hung up on the, uh, the idea of, in the Trinity, why is there a father and a son? Why, why this language of father, son, and spirit? I had somebody in this community ask me one time, they said, so is the spirit the mom? And like the father is the dad and the spirit's the mom and Jesus is their son? I'm like, no, that's, that's not what's going on. What, what is God trying to do by using this language of father, son, and spirit? This is an analogy, and like all analogies, it'll break down if we run too far with it. But think of this. God created the love of a parent for a child based on the love that existed within the Trinity. What he's trying to tell us is the love that a parent has for their child, this unbelievable extreme love, is just a picture, a shadow of the love that existed years and years before in the Trinity. I don't have kids yet, but some of my peers, some of the, the young men that I've known who have become fathers, they're like, the first time I held my son or daughter, I thought I knew what love was, but there's nothing like that feeling. I thought I loved my spouse, I thought I loved my girlfriend, I thought, it, but I've never loved anyone like when I held my son or daughter for the first time. They were like, I didn't know what I was doing with my life, but once I held that baby, I was like, this is what I'm here to do. This is what I'm about. This is why I exist, to love this being. And what God is saying is, that gives you a small picture of what, how I feel about the Son. I've used the terms Father and Son so you can get a picture of the love that exists between the relationships in the Trinity. So, you say, okay, Alex, you talked a lot about the Trinity. Why do I care that Yahweh is a Trinity? Why do I care that the Christian God is a Trinity? Why does it matter? 
Well, it means that he created us not to serve some purpose or to serve some need of him, but he created us to share his richest goodness with us. Now, this fundamentally reframes what we think about God and what we think God is like. Many times in America, when we say the word God, and we've talked about this, right? When we say God, everybody's thinking of something different. But in America, when we say the word God, we usually imagine a singular deist God that many of our founding fathers believed in. Many of our founding fathers were deists. A deist God was not a trinity, but he simply created the world. He wound the clock and he let it run and he stepped back and he's like, you're on your own. I'm not going to intervene. Have a good time. I just create stuff and I let it go. I made a robot and now I'm just going to let that robot run havoc. Thomas Jefferson was a deist, um, brilliant thinker, but a deist. A few years ago, I was at Monticello, his home and farm and plantation. And I mean, brilliant guy. When you go into his house, he built an elaborate clock and calendar system on his wall with pulleys and ropes so that every morning he would get up and it naturally told the time and would move the calendar to tell him the day and the hour. Brilliant guy. He was an inventor. He had this library full of books. In fact, he was so in debt all the time, he was like, I'm getting out of debt. I'm going to sell all my books. And as they carted them away and actually started the Library of Congress from his book collection, he said the famous quote that I love. He says, I cannot live without books. And he went and spent all the money on brand new books and was back in debt again. But he was a deist. And that meant that God was one and so there couldn't be a Jesus. And so he famously went through the Bible, cutting out all the parts that really didn't happen. And he was the judge of that. And so he has a really small Bible called the Thomas Jefferson Bible. I bought one in the gift shop while I was there. Very, very small because he cut out all the parts that couldn't happen because God doesn't intervene in our world because he's singular and he created the world and he's distant. He doesn't do miracles. We're on our own. He's left mankind to our own devices. And this thinking about God has snuck into all of our American thinking about God. This view of God has permeated our Western cultures so thoroughly that when we talk about God, many times we're thinking about God as a deist would and not as a Trinitarian Christian would. Michael Reeves, who wrote the book Delighting in the Trinity, says when you don't start with Jesus, the Son, you'll always end up with a different God who is not the Father. We'll have a wrong picture of God if we don't start with Jesus. If we don't see that Jesus is part of this Trinitarian community of love, we'll always get a wrong picture of God. You say, okay, Alex, but what about the Old Testament? Our Jewish friends would say, there's no Trinity. God is one. Yahweh is one. The idea of a Trinity is a uniquely Christian idea. You can go to any other world religion, and they do not have a Trinitarian view of their God. There's no other religion in the world that says God is three in one. That's unique to us. And when people say all religions are the same, we're all saying the same thing. We're saying that God is three in one and nobody else is saying that. That's unique to us. The Muslim faith directly condemns the idea of a trinity. They say Allah cannot be divided. He is one. The Hindu faith says there are many gods, in fact millions of them, all ranging in ability and power. Buddhists say there is no personal being called God at all, and in fact you have to be devoid of personality in order to achieve greater status and the spiritual sense. C.S. Lewis said all other religions have a simpler definition of God than Christianity does. 
But then I love what he said after that. He says, but we're dealing in facts. And he said, sometimes facts aren't simple. And uh, I think that's very true. If there is a higher being who created everything, who exists beyond time and space, wouldn't it make sense that he's too big for us to really wrap our heads around? To me, that makes sense. But back to our Jewish friends. So if the Christian faith grew out of the Jewish faith, and the Jewish faith says there's only a singular God, how can we get this idea of a Trinitarian God? Last week I introduced you to the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. All good Jewish children in Jesus' day, they didn't learn their ABCs, they learned the Shema. Yahweh is one. Love Yahweh with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now the writers of the New Testament Bible were Jewish, and they weren't stupid or bad at math. I'm really bad at math. So if you told me one plus one plus one equals one, I'd be like, okay, like I'm bad at math, that sounds good. But the New Testament writers weren't bad at math. They knew that one plus one plus one equals three and not one. So how did these good Jewish people who grew up from their very first thought, learning that Yahweh is one, how did they get this idea of a Trinitarian view of God in the New Testament? Well, the word one here, is very interesting. It's a word that can be translated united. When it says Yahweh is one, it could also say Yahweh is united. Like we say United States of America, we're one country united. We're 50 states, but we're one country. Um, it's the same word that says that Adam and Eve were one when they were married, or we might say that a rally of thousands of people spoke with one voice, a united voice. The Old Testament also personifies aspects of God. We see all throughout the Old Testament that God's wisdom is talking, uh, spoken about as a person, and it says God's wisdom did this, and God's wisdom said this, and God's wisdom works like this. It also talks about God's word as a person in the Old Testament, and not just an idea. It's not just something that God speaks, but it seems to be a person that acts on God's behalf. Then there's appearances in the Old Testament of the angel of Yahweh that is worshipped as God and receives worship as God. And there's hundreds of references of the Spirit of God at work in the Old Testament. And the New Testament writers, they knew their Old Testament. And so they pick up on these themes and they build from them. Um, in John chapter 1, John says the Word was with God and the Word was God. He's using this Old Testament language of the Word being personified. And the Word became flesh and blood. And he says, we called him Jesus. Some Jewish people argue that Christians are polytheists because we believe in the Father, Son, and Spirit. But the New Testament writers didn't see that that way. They didn't see themselves as worshiping many gods. They saw themselves as being consistent with Jewish thought that Yahweh was one, the Father, Son, and Spirit. You say, Alex makes sense of that. How is three one? Uh, I don't know. Now, like, it would be simple if the Bible was written like a systematic theology text. When I was in uh, seminary, we were given these big, bulky, boring books called Systematic Theology, and they would take a concept like God, and they would just like endlessly talk about these definitions of God, and then they would take a subject like the Bible, and then endlessly, and then salvation, and then, you know, sanctification, and they had all these sections you could just open up to and read all these doctrines and definitions. But the Bible isn't a theological textbook. We can all thank God for that. Because theological textbooks are so boring. The Bible is a love letter written by a Trinitarian community of love to communicate to you how much God loves you. 
It was written through human authors to convey a divine plan to reunite heaven and earth, to reunite us with God's love. Now, there's a lot of things in the Bible that aren't explained to us, where I wish there was a chapter where I could just flip open and say, explain to me the atonement, how God brought heaven and earth back together through the sacrifice of Jesus. There's not a section of that. We have different little parts and pieces that we can put together. The Bible is Eastern mystery literature. And that means it is written in such a way not to give us all the answers, but to send us on a spiritual journey, to ask questions and to seek someone who has answers, that person being God. Now, I think given enough time, humans are really smart. I think we'll figure out what dark matter is. I think that we'll solve quantum entanglement. I think given enough time and money and resources, we'll create a cure for cancer. I think it'll happen. There'll be a cure for coronavirus. There'll be a cure for cancer. Humans are crazy smart. And if you give them enough time and resources, we can figure almost anything out. But God is transcendent. That means that we can't find out anything about him unless he reveals it to us because he exists on a whole different plane of existence. He exists outside the realm that we can measure and theorize. We can only wrestle with what God reveals about himself to us. And when it comes to the Trinity, he hasn't given us a ton to go on. He hasn't told us how it all works. He goes, I'm Father, Son, and Spirit, but that's one, I'm one being, Yahweh. And we're like, uh, so God explained that to me. He's like, no. And I wrestle with that because my Western rational mind wants simple black and white answers. And in some places, we're told, trust. It's like, do you trust me? That's what faith means. It means I trust a person, so I will trust the parts that I don't have all the pieces to. I think the way that Jesus lived and loved is the best human life possible. And I think if everyone lived and loved like him, the world would be a better place. I don't have to fathom all the mysteries of the Trinity. But by becoming his student, I trust him with the stuff that doesn't make sense to me. The stuff that he doesn't give me all the pieces to. The stuff that doesn't all come together. And it's not just the Trinity. There's things in my life where I'm like, this doesn't make sense. But I'm his student and I'll trust him with the stuff that doesn't make sense. Now, Matthew, who we've been reading here in chapter 3 about the baptism of Jesus, he ends his book, this biography about Jesus, in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. He ends it like this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Make apprentices of my way of life, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the world. The book of Matthew opens with Jesus being baptized, and the Trinity being on display to celebrate this new humanity, humanity 2.0. Adam was like, man, I don't need God, I'm good. And that's the humanity that we've been a part of. And Jesus comes along, God in human form, and he says, I'm going to start a new humanity. A humanity that reunites heaven and earth. A humanity that has Yahweh as king of a human people. And the book of Matthew ends with a resurrected Jesus telling his students to go everywhere and to teach people to be apprentices of the way that he lived in love. And he tells them to do this, to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. See, when we become a student of Jesus and we choose to publicly acknowledge him as our master and teacher through baptism, we enter into the Trinitarian community of love. He says, you reunite heaven and earth. 
you get to enjoy this Trinitarian community of love. We get to join the divine dance and dance in unison with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And when we do that, the Father looks to us as he looked to Jesus and he says, my beloved child, in you I am well. So as we come to the end, what do we take away from this? What do we do with this? This could have been just like, wow, what a fascinating theological concept, the Trinity. Boy, I've got some good random facts to throw out at the next, you know, dinner I have with really boring people who like to talk about things that are abstract and esoteric. What actually affects our lives? Number one, embrace the mystery. Next week we're going to talk about um, God being mysterious and how sometimes God doesn't give us all the answers. And sometimes, like with the Trinity, he says, hey, this is how it is. And we say, explain that to us, and he goes, no. And sometimes there's things in our life that are mysterious. And we're like, God, how did this happen? How did I end up here? Why is it like this? And he says, hey, trust me. Trust me. Embrace the mystery. He doesn't always have to give us the answers to still be good. Number two, join Humanity 2.0. Have you ever decided to become a student of the way that Jesus lived in love? Have you ever decided to say, hey, I want to dance with the divine community of love. I want to enter into the Trinitarian community of love. I want to reunite heaven and earth by becoming a student of Jesus, by embracing this free gift of salvation, a restoration between the relationship of heaven and earth, between me and Yahweh. And three, do we reflect the Trinity in our relationships? This is something I've been pondering as I've thought about this message this week. The Trinity acts with loving, um, loving respect and leading within their community. And so the Father respects the Son, and the Son respects the Father, and they respect the Spirit, and the Spirit respects the Father and the Son. And they have this loving, mutual leading and being led. It's not me saying, Darby, you're my wife, so we're going to do this. But it's a mutual loving and leading. Leading and being led. Do I reflect that in my friendships? Do I reflect that in my community? In my marriage? Do I reflect how the Trinity acts in relationships in my relationships? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for revealing what Yahweh is like to us. You are the most clear picture of what God is like. And we are so grateful that you came into this world and you did not destroy us because that's what we've deserved. We hurt other people and we've hurt your planet. We've hurt your creation. We're a destructive people. But instead, you said, I want to rescue them. I want to redeem them. I want to make them into a new humanity in my image. And so you came and took on flesh and blood. You came and you appeared like us. And you lived and loved in such a profoundly unique way that you showed what it would look like to live reunited with heaven and earth. What it would look like to live as a human dancing the divine dance with a Trinitarian community of love. And you gave an invitation. Come, follow me. Come, follow me. Become a student of my way of life. Accept the free gift of salvation that I and you're still making that request today. And all it takes is any one of us saying, Jesus, I trust you. I trust you. I want to become your student 
introduced me into the Trinitarian community. Lord, we ask that you will help us live out your love in our relationships, that we'll model the respect and love that the Father shows for the Son and the Son shows for the Spirit and the Father. That the way that we treat people would not be about controlling or coercion, but it would be about mutual love and leading, leading and being led. I pray all these things today like I believe Jesus would pray.